This podcast was recorded live at the St. Emlyn's Live Conference in Manchester, October 2018. You can see a lot more about the conference, including other presentations, the video, the slides, and a whole background to this and other talks on the St. Emlyn's blog.org website. And also you can follow along on the podcast. I hope you enjoy it. The first up today is Natalie May talking about the pursuit of excellence. Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? That depends a good deal on where you want to get to, said the cat. I don't much care where, said Alice. Then it doesn't matter which way you go, said the cat. So long as I get somewhere, Alice added as an explanation. Oh, you're sure to do that, said the cat, if you only walk for long enough. So I grew up reading Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Not Alice in Wonderland, it is called Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Um, And it's a book that I read a lot of times, and I really like that passage now as an emergency physician, because I think it really speaks to me. There's a good chance that all of us in our critical care careers are going to walk long enough to get somewhere. But I wonder how much time we take to stop and think about where it is that we want to get to. And I've had this battle between my brain and my heart for a long time about this subject. So I can tell you from my heart, I want to be excellent, or at least as good as I can be. And I know that that might not be the same thing. And I'm sure that you guys feel the same, yeah? That's why you're here. That's why you give up your time to come to conferences and chat about this kind of stuff. But my brain will tell you that I don't really know what that means. And I actually have a bigger problem than Alice, because Alice doesn't know where she's going. And I think a lot of the time, I don't really know where I am. Uh, And if we just delve very briefly into theoretical physics, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle says, if you don't know where you are, you might at least know how fast you're going. But that just makes me think that I might well be on a teacup ride at Disneyland, spinning round and round in circles and never really going anywhere. And helpfully, uh, David Dunning and Justin Kruger, who are uh, educational psychologists and cognitive psychologists, produced this Ig Nobel Prize winning piece of work in which they describe very clearly that we don't know how good we are, whether or not we're any good at anything. That's a real problem for us. And how do we reconcile that in clinical medicine? What does it even mean to be excellent? It's hard, isn't it? Did Did anyone really struggle to come up with like what it actually means? Yeah, yeah, me too. I really couldn't kind of come together. And I think that's because excellence is a really theoretical place. It's not like a destination and we can nail down, that's that's exactly where I want to be. Sometimes we can think of people who we think are excellent, but there's bound to be things about them that we really don't want to emulate. So it's more of a theoretical place, much like Wonderland. And much like Wonderland, it also changes around us the more we know about it. And I think that that's something we need to maybe spend a little bit of time with. Because medicine's evolving too, so if we... If we commit ourselves to a path to a place that is right for us now, by the time we get there, medicine will have evolved and it will no longer be the place that we want to be. But there are some elements that can help us to navigate that journey to excellence. There's things that can help us to keep thinking and growing and changing, like our own personal Cheshire cats challenging us along the way. So we're going to have a little think about some of those things. And that pathway is a, is a two-track pathway. It's about us as individuals and us as members of a team because there's very few people in healthcare who work entirely in isolation. So I think the first step is to try to solve that problem and work out exactly where we are. And we all have an illusion of stillness, like a swan on a lake, but actually in reality things are constantly changing within us. So I'm not even the same set of cells I was when I started this talk. And we have to recognise that knowing where we are is also a constant evaluative process and the key to that really is reflection dirty word i know 
but bear with me. So reflection allows us to really look below, below the surface and see exactly what's going on and to, uh, to identify areas that are good and where we want to change and to inform our future actions about ourselves and the decisions that we make. And it's really natural for us when we come into tough situations to want to reflect on those. Absolutely, you should. We should, and we all do. And that's really important for us in terms of changing our practice and moving on and healing and learning from where we've been. And there's that immediate emotional phase. We should definitely go with that, like find a buddy and talk it out and see what's, what's going on for you. But there's some important analytical stuff that we often need to do afterwards, and we can miss that if we just do like a debrief rather than a full reflection. Toyota, as an organisation, undertakes something called um, Shippai Gaku no Susume, which is literally an invitation to the science of failure. So rather than just looking at the really big stuff, they take a random sample of everything that comes off their production line and they look at that. And that's probably what we should be doing when we're reflecting on our practice. My registrars do this in the emergency department in Australia. It really surprised me when I walked in the first time and I found that there was somebody who'd come in 10 minutes before their shift, going through the electronic records of the patients that they'd seen recently and finding out what had happened to them since. And sometimes phoning them up if they discharged them to say, hey, how are things going? I thought this was going on with you and I thought this might happen, how is it? That's really good practice because that kind of closes the loop for us. Because what we want to do when we're reflecting is understand and break down what happened and how we feel about it and give some time to that emotional stuff, but also to think about why we made the decisions and why we did the things we did and ultimately to plan some future stuff based on that. And it doesn't really matter whether we start with the facts of what happened and then we delve into how do I feel about it or you start with oh, I feel really strongly this thing about what happened and I wonder what it was that made me feel that way. Because then we need to move into the breakdown of the reasoning and the driving forces and there are some frameworks we can do to use to do that. So at Sydney Hems we use STEPS, which is self, team, environment, patient, system. And that's, we use that to analyse our cases because that's a similar process to how we'd use our zero-point survey, which Simon's going to talk about a little later on, so I'm not going to dwell on that. And then, Bill, you can open it back for you. There you go. Um, and then we, at Resuscitology, which is a reflection case-based two-day uh, residential conference that I run with some, well, I don't run, some friends and I put together in Australia, we use GPAS. So goal, where, what are we trying to achieve? Plan, how are we going to get there? Actions, what do we need to do to get there? And skills, what do we need within ourselves to be able to undertake those actions? And, and I really like this because it moves us from the macro goal of excellence, which we've all said is, you know, we want to be excellent, but no idea what that means. There's some real micro stuff that we can actually do practically. And Cliff Reed has some examples of this in clinical practice at his blog site at Resus Me. But we're going to use that framework to talk about excellence today. So where do we want to be? We want to be excellent. How are we going to get there? What do we need to do and what skills do we need to develop in order to do it? Because, as we said, the ultimate aim is to take things forward into the future. What is it from what I'm doing that's got to change? What do I need to do differently? And what is it that I'm doing that's really good that I need to do for some more time and even better and carry on doing what stays with me? <coughs> and the answer might be nothing. might be excellent already. Good on you, but I suspect it's not the case. Okay, so our goal is excellence. Yeah, everybody happy with that? Everybody want to be excellent? Everybody wants to be excellent? Yes, good, okay. So, so and we kind of know a little bit about where we are. And we're going to start to plan how we're going to get there. But we can't do that on our own either. Because we can only ever understand where we need to go to within the 
the framework of our own perceptions of our values and our skills and our attitudes. And as Dunning and Kruger have told us, we might be in a nice little bubble around that, floating in the sky, or our bubble might be somewhere a bit less pleasant. So I think the answer to finding out where we need to go to is peer review. So this is a, a photograph of coffee and cases at Sydney Hems, and this is something we do every day. We have a facilitated conversation, the staff specialist consultant facilitates the chat, but all of the clinical members of staff and our area medical crewing can come and talk about tough cases that we've done recently, or just regular cases, and we can always find some learning points out of that. If you have a mentor, and you should, and you should probably have more than one, they're a really good person to talk to about the challenging stuff as well. But pick somebody for that who understands what it's like to work where you work and to do the things you do, and somebody who likes you enough to be honest, but also to be kind. And then the final element, I think, of knowing where you're going to is peer observation. So this is a bit more confronting, and this hopefully is going to be the topic of my PhD. Um, so I think we all train for a period of time, no matter what your discipline, and then you get the certificate at the end, and it's like someone's like picked up your anchor and thrown it on board and just pushed you out into the sea. And you're just like floating along, hoping you're sailing in the same direction as everybody else. Does it feel like that, those of you who finished training? You just kind of go, is, there, is everybody else doing what I'm doing? I have no idea. And so I've, I'm privileged enough to have worked with um, con other consultants who are open to peer-level observation. And that's when we watch one another in a clinical scenario and then we both go and talk off the shop floor and we actually both learn from watching the way that somebody else does that. It takes a little bit of bravery on your, on your part, but it's really valuable as a tool. And so my PhD hopefully is going to be developing a framework to help you to do that in your workplace. Okay, so we know where we are and we're going to find out where we are by reflecting. And we're going to, we know roughly where we want to go to and we're going to, how we're going to find that out. What do we need to do to enact our plan for excellence? I think we need to know what our comfort zone is. And that for you might be a physical place, like the department that you work in. It might be a practice area, like adult practice, or pre-hospital practice, or pediatric practice. Or it might be a mindset. And I think we need to know where it is in order to just maybe step onto the fringes a little bit. And I'm very fortunate in having had the opportunity to do that. So I finished my training. I did all my training from medical school, uh, and then all my early training and my higher training in emergency medicine, my first consultant job in Manchester. And then I left and I went and worked in Oxford for six months as a consultant. And let me tell you, that was a big change. It's really confronting to be the consultant in a department and then find out that you don't know which troponin assay you're using or what the rule out strategy is. Or how to manage your patient with a fracture because your hospital doesn't run a fracture clinic or how to even refer a patient to an inpatient specialty because you've no idea which numbers to press on the phone to get through to switchboard or to make a page. That's, that really takes you somewhere different in terms of your humility. And what you learn from that is how to value the local knowledge of the people who work there all the time with you, your paramedic colleagues, your nursing colleagues, your junior doctors. But you also learn what it is that you as an expert are bringing to every situation. So your communication skills and your leadership and your ability to bring people into a team even if you don't necessarily have all the answers. And I think once we are familiar with where our comfort zone is, we can really jump beyond into our fear. This would scare me. Would anyone else be scared of this? Yeah. So have a think about what it is that isn't just uncomfortable, but that actually really confronts you. So I used to be scared of flying. 
And so then I went to work for Sydney Hens. I'm not scared of flying anymore, so that's really good. Um, what I am still very, very uncomfortable, and I will say afraid of, is our underwater escape training, which I have to do every two years. So I did that in February. It's not fun. And then they changed the way that we're doing it operationally, so I had to do it again two weeks ago. Even though I was still current and technically I didn't have to do it, I had to do it. Uh, and this time we have a, they brought in an emergency breathing system, which meant that I had to try to breathe underwater, which I, I am not a water person. I get freaked out snorkeling. And it was horrible. I didn't sleep the night before. I was shaky. I wanted to cry. And there was a point at which I said to the guy there, I don't want to do this. And he said, you can go if you want to. But I'd already said to him, I'm going to freak out and you're going to have to give me some eye contact and tell me I can do it because I'm telling myself and I'm not really listening. Um, but I did it. I did it all. And a lot of the credit for that goes to the guys who were there because they were awesome. But a lot of that credit goes to me as well because now I know if my helicopter ditches. I mean, that's not going to be fun, <laughs> landing in the water. But I feel like I could do it. And if I had to go and do the Hewitt again tomorrow, I could do it because I've done it. And I think that's some, we learn a lot about ourselves from putting ourselves out where we're afraid. So what's the fear for you? Is it a sick neonate? Is it a major trauma? How can you put yourself in the position where that's not scary for you anymore? So once we know the limits of our comfort zone, there's some skills that we probably need in order to, to deal with our fear. And we can divide them into sort of physical skills and mental <coughs> skills, which is a bit artificial, but we'll go with it. So you might remember that in Wonderland, Alice ate some cookies and they made her smaller. And I think our temptation when we're thinking about physical skills is to go, well, this is the thing that I know I'm really not good at. So for me, that's ultrasound. I'm terrible at ultrasound. And I, I always keep thinking, well, maybe if I could just find like three days and I just went on a course for three days and I just did ultrasound all the time, I'd be lots better. And that's probably true. But Alice also drank some, some uh, potion that made her smaller. And I think there's some really small things that we can do that will actually make a big difference. So as I've been reflecting on my practice over the last couple of years, there's some always do things that I've started doing. So I always sit down to talk to the patient. I always shake hands with and find out the names of everybody in the room. And I always, when I write a discharge letter, take it to the patient and read it with them and explain what the medical language means. And I actually think that those three little things probably make a bigger difference to patient care than one big thing like being better at ultrasound. And in terms of mind skills, I want you to have a think about who you are in your department. Are you like Alice, curious about everything? Or are you a bit more like one of the playing cards who just does what you're told? Or are you more like the Queen of Hearts who's pretty grumpy? Or maybe the Mad Hatter who's unpredictable? I've certainly been a combination of the Queen of Hearts and the Mad Hatter in times. Very sorry if I did that to you. But I know that that doesn't help my team. And so I've kind of developed my own mantra that I found actually really makes a difference to the way that I behave in my department, and that I think is good for me. So I want you to think about how do you think about yourself at work? How do you think about what you do? And how do you think about your colleagues? Because every morning I get up before work, and I say to myself, and I'm not joking, I am a competent and caring doctor. And I'm good at what I do. I'm really privileged to do this work. And I'm really excited and keen for whatever it is that I'm going to go and do. So that might be when you take the, you know, the chronic back pain card out. Here's a great opportunity for me to do some really good stuff here. And I'm really fortunate to work with these people. 
who are amazing and skilled and passionate like I am, and who have all come here today because they want to do a good job. And I found that saying that every day to myself and then saying it when I find like I'm getting slipping a little bit into Queen of Hearts mode at work just pushes me back towards being able to be curiouser and curiouser like Alice. And that makes our department a better place to work. So I think if we can take on those elements of GPAS for ourselves, we can definitely move towards excellence. But it's not all about us. There's also our team. We're parts of teams. So we need to think about how our teams contribute towards excellence. And again, the first step for that is for our teams to know where they are. And now I've got the second dirty word of this presentation, which is audit. Now, this is an airway. I have to explain this because my husband, who's not medical, was like, whose vagina is that? <laughs> <clears throat> this, is a, this is actually a bougie in, in an airway um, from a CMAC recording of an intubation I did. It's a very soiled, disgusting airway. The video is much better than the image because it's got green stuff everywhere. So audit's really useful because it allows us to set standards that matter to the care that we deliver and then measure ourselves against them. And at Sydney Hems, we have uh, key performance indicators around our intubations and the associated issues with those. And we also have uh, KPIs around our scene times. So that tells us where we are. And our goal is excellence. But how do we know where we want to go as a team? Well, I think that's the other part of clinical audit. So that's kind of looking at the big stuff and the regular stuff. So we do daily follow-up for all of our cases in retrieval medicine at Sydney Hems, And we also look at our M&Ms. We look at the big significant cases where things went a bit wrong. And at the John Radcliffe in Oxford, they also have a monthly clinical governance day meeting that everybody from the emergency department is invited to. And they analyse every single death that occurs in their emergency department, including patients who come in in cardiac arrest with a post-mortem report. And I think that's really, that's really phenomenal. I don't think a lot of departments do that. I think it's really useful to know what's happening. And we need to think about how accessible these are, because I think we can very medicalise them and leave out our allied colleagues. But actually, they quite often have a lot to contribute as well. So our Sydney Hems Clinical Governance Day is a dial-in event that's webcast, so that our staff can dial in if they can't make it there. But we don't just look at the M&M. We don't just want to know what we don't want to do in the future. We want to know what we do want to do. So we identify the awesome and amazing. And this is a slightly wonky slide. Carl made the photographic slide. So this is part of our governance processes too, and it should be part of yours. And I think the key to learning from clinical governance is being open. And our inclination is naturally to anonymise cases so we can talk openly about them. But I think it can be really helpful for us to de-anonymise ourselves. So I know that when cases that I've been involved in are presented, if I talk, if I say actually that was me, people will then ask me in a much more curious and compassionate way about why I made the decisions I did rather than just framing them within their own context and making assumptions, which can be quite difficult for me to hear. So yeah, I think de-anonymising ourselves and being really open is helpful. And of course, I have to throw in a little bit about research. So we can't just do governance without research. We need to know where we fit into the wider world of healthcare, and research will help us to do that. So what do we need in order to make meaningful and lasting change for our teams? I think the key thing is to understand our team's culture. And culture is one of those words that's a bit nebulous and a bit kind of buzzwordy. But it's really important. It's a, it's a summation of what our teams do and the way that they do it. And it's quite intrinsic to our ability to make meaningful change and the way that we enact change as well. So at Sydney Hems, we have a very strong safety culture. Not that you'd know that from this photograph, which is a selfie that the pilot took at a couple of thousand feet. 
but autopilot was on, so it's very safe. Um, but no, we explicitly share our core safety values. They, everybody knows what they are. So we have a daily morning brief in which we discuss all the, the risks that might be associated with the jobs that we might do. The weather, the sea, all that kind of stuff. Where we can go safely, where we can't go safely. And when we get a job, there's a, an operational risk assessment that happens before we get any clinical information. So we're not tempted to go because it's a six-year-old who's really sick. If we can't go safely, we don't go. And the third component is that we have this rule, four to say go, one to say no, which means that if we're going to do something operationally like a winch job, all four members of our team, the pilot, the crewman, the doctor, the paramedic, have to be happy. And if any one of us says, stop, I've got an issue with this, then it doesn't go ahead until that issue's been addressed. That's even me as a doctor who knows nothing about helicopters. And there's a lot more to our culture beyond just safety, but I think it's a really nice example of how embedding your shared values can shape the way that you make decisions as an organisation. And I would like you to have a little think about what the culture's like in the places that you work. What are your core cultural values in your workplace? And how are they shared? How do you know what they are? How are they expressed? Which might not be the same thing. And then what skills do our teams need in order to shape our culture? Again, I'm going to sort of artificially divide those into physical skills and mental skills. And again, we can think about training our teams. And it's very tempting to train the big stuff, the life, limb and site-threatening procedures. So this is a sim of a resuscitative hysterotomy. It's not the right one, I promise. Um, and we have new registrars every six months, and we put them through an intensive training induction program where they do these skills over and over and over again. And that's good for us as consultants because it means that we are teaching them every six months. So we all remain current. And that's helpful because it allows us to offload some of the cognitive bandwidth that we need to be able to do this really confronting stuff, to develop that muscle memory so that when we have to do it, it feels natural-ish, but also to be able to manage the non clinical stuff, the human factors that often come with these situations. But they're rare. And actually, we should probably invest more of our time, just like the little things, in the stuff we do a lot. So this is a simulation of a, an RSI currency. And we have to do this regularly. We have a, a currency requirement that every so often we have to be observed or teach rapid sequence injection intubation. And that really helps us then to make this really natural. There's much, if we teach people to do this well, our service is going to perform much better than if we teach everybody to do hysterotomies well, but they you know, just do any old thing when they want to intubate a patient. And keeping the kind of simple stuff and using simulation this way can help us as our teams to train decision-making and uh, graded assertiveness and communication skills and leadership in ways that we maybe don't really think about. And we're doing this in my ED in Sydney as well. We've just started to do in-situ sim. And I, last week, emailed everybody in the ED to say, we are running cardiac arrest scenarios. Here is the algorithm that we are going to be testing you on. I'm not testing you. It's not testing. Here's the algorithm you're going to need to know because we don't want to look at your clinical care. We want to look at how we function. And for our, for our teams in a kind of mental skill set, it's really easy when you're the consultant to walk in and be the boss just be the kind of knowing or all-knowing, all-seeing leader. <clears throat> but I think we'll do our teams a better service if we role model perpetual learning and we show that we're not the all-knowing, all-seeing person. Sharing our errors and our failures helps to, uh, to flatten that departmental hierarchy. 
And I love the idea in sort of critical scenarios of saying to the team, what am I missing? Because you're basically giving them permission to stop you from screwing up. That's a very good thing. But it's hard because we doubt ourselves regularly. I definitely doubt myself regularly. Now I'm up this end. Oh, goodness, I don't. And we try to overcome that doubt by convincing everyone we know it all and we're brilliant. But we aren't fooling people. People know. Hence why you will see this graph and you go, oh, yeah, I know those people. Overcompensating. We're doing our teams a disservice when we're trying to think that we know everything. And we need to be humble and role model that kind of perpetual learning and stay curious. So I'm very lucky to have had these opportunities uh, in a number of departments, nine different workplaces I've started in in the last three and a half years. It's quite confronting. I'm a bit over it now, but it's good. Um, but you don't have to move halfway across the world to find excellence. We're not looking for per perfection, because perfection is that kind of steady state. And we want to be dynamic. And of course, excellence is relative. And it will mean different things to different people. And there is no magical unicorn emergency department where everything is perfect. And I am certainly not perfect. I've already told you I'm terrible at ultrasound. And I'm scared of helicopter underwater escape training. But I think if we want to be excellent, and we can reflect meaningfully to find out where we are, we can use peer review to identify where we should be going. We can identify and move out of our comfort zone. We can certainly sweat the small stuff and maybe take on some of the bigger stuff too. And we can develop the right mindset by building our own mantra to make ourselves behave properly in our department. We can get a lot closer to excellence. And I think for our teams to be excellent, if we use audit well, and then we learn from the M&M and the A&A, if we identify and share our culture very clearly, and we train our teams, and have that flattened hierarchy because we're role modeling what it means to be a, a lifelong learner, then our teams can be excellent too. And it's that growth mindset, that continual striving for improvement, for consistency and excellence that's, the, that's more meaningful than any kind of single big, if I do this thing, then I'll be excellent. This is much more meaningful because excellence is a kind of, I don't know, trite, it's kind of a journey. Um, but there's great joy in working in a department where people embody that and you feel like you're kind of working towards it together. And you can push yourself and your organisation from wherever you are right now. But it's going to be hard. Because there'll be times that you just don't know which way to go and how to move forward. And that's why, that on top of all this stuff, you need some buddies. You probably need somebody inside your department or inside your organisation and somebody outside, at the bare minimum. Because there's going to be times that we all need someone to point out to us that we're trying to play croquet with a flamingo and a hedgehog. And here today for you, I think, is a great opportunity to find your people. Find the people who will sit down and have tea with you and try to solve the riddles that you face in your, in your department, in your practice. So if there's someone else here from your organisation, catch up with them at the tea break and see if there's some ways that you can identify to move towards excellence together. And if there isn't anyone here from your organisation, then you have a whole load of potential buddies who can just be your champion and be your encourager when you kind of feel like things are all going wrong. Because we all need that support as we move forward in pursuit of excellence. Thank you. Thank you.